Good morning. I want to start by just praising God for seeing you all here today. I, I, I just am filled with joy uh, beyond even words right now to, to look out here and, and see all of God's people uh, come to listen to his word. Uh, so I just pray I don't mess it up. <laughs> and Grady, we're on the same page today, brother. The, uh, that prayer moment, it it's, it's fits right in, okay? Uh, we're going to continue our series. Um, we took a time out from uh, Genesis. We'll, we'll be finishing up in uh, 2085 or something like that. <laughs> but uh, we took a little time out to, uh, uh, we want to talk about the core values of our church. And uh, so you can find them on the website. I'm not going to uh, repeat them here. I'm going to talk about one of them today. Uh, but uh, you can go to our website and, uh, and you can see what our core values here are at Maricopa Springs Family Church, okay? So this morning, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about our core value here uh, concerning evangelism. Um, and evangelism is, is, is uh, simply we share the gospel as ambassadors for Christ. Evangelism is, is declaring or proclaiming, if you will, the gospel message of salvation. Uh, this is the primary ministry of the church. And we call this gospel message good news, for it is good news. Uh, not, and not just any good news. So uh, let me give you a little example of, of the difference between this good news and just any good news. Right? Um, when I was 60... I was, uh, my wife and I were talking, and, and I had expressed some, some regrets uh, that uh, I never had a son. Um, I was 60, too old for that. Uh, Connie was 45, and actually we were told uh, that we couldn't uh, have any more children. So that prayer, I stopped praying, right? Seemed like the prudent thing to do, pray some, about something else, right? Then uh, one morning, I was uh, in the restroom. I was taking a blood pressure pill, which is good timing when you hear the rest. <laughs> and my wife com comes up to me. She goes, I have great news. Smile from here to here. I've never seen her smile like this. Right? She says, guess what? So I started guessing. Uh, let's see. We got that contract. We're no, that's not it. Oh, we got uh, uh, that money. No, I didn't. that's not it. Right? I guess four or five things, right? I was nowhere in the ballpark. And I saw her smile start to fade. And then it turned to sadness, and then teardrops. I said, okay, I'm really failing here, so maybe you should just tell me the, this great news. And she goes, we're having a baby. And that's when I was thankful for the blood pressure pill. And I literally was holding on to the sink. My, my knees were gone. Right? I was a big, strong guy, but I, I could not stand up. And, and then uh, this, so great news, we had a son. Um, the only, I think, bad part of it was it, it caused some of my brothers in Christ to sin because uh, they were taking bets, they were gambling on who was going to be out of diapers first and in diapers first. <laughs> and, 
And when confronted with this, uh, this statement, I just said, well, depends. <laughs> so that's an example of just any good news. But it was great news. We, we have this wonderful son that God gave us. So the gospel shows people their wounds and bestows upon them love. The gospel shows them their bondage and supplies the hammer to knock away their chains. The gospel shows them their nakedness and provides them garments of purity. The gospel shows them their poverty and pours into them the wealth of heaven. The gospel shows them their sins and points them to the Savior. This good news of salvation that we are commanded to proclaim is the fact that salvation is an act of God, initiated by God, brought about by God, and sustained by God. Salvation is what the Bible is primarily concerned with. It's the story of man's redemption as brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the story of the Son of Man who died a substitutionary death for, for the forgiveness of sins, our sins, and the gift of eternal life. If you read Scripture and miss the story of salvation, you've missed its message and its meaning. Salvation is always good news. It's the good news of God's forgiveness, of adoption into his family, of fellowship with his people, of freedom from the penalty of sin, Freedom from the power of sin and freedom from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Let us pray. Oh God, we bless your name today. We glorify your name today. We thank you, God, for your tender mercies today. We acknowledge our sins and our transgressions as we seek your forgiveness. I pray today that somebody will be saved that someone will be restored, that someone will be delivered, that someone will be encouraged. And when it is all said and done, that the name of Jesus will receive all honor and glory, that we will bow down before him with praise on our lips and humility in our hearts. I pray that today Jesus will be, the, uh, will be his name will be made real. He will be made real in someone's life, Lord, in the life of our church, O oh God. Now we pray that you anoint your word today and that the message preached today will change our hearts and minds, that we will be placed firmly in the center of your will. And we pray this in a name that is above all other names, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God's people said, amen. Now as I stated earlier, we're going to be talking about evangelism. And here at Maricopa Springs, we're good at a lot of stuff. I mean, we are. The Holy Spirit has gifted our folks in various ways, and, and they do just a really good job of doing the different ministries associated with these gifts given them. But there's one thing that we don't do very well, and that one thing is sharing the gospel with our community. But it's one of our stated core values, and it's something that must be done to, uh, something has to be done to remedy this lacking, this uh, lackadaisical attitude. Uh, that our church exhibits from time to time when it comes to evangelism. So let's start with the fact that evangelism is not a, uh, merely a request made to us, but it's a command of Scripture that we preach the gospel. 
But you know, many churches, they've come, they've suffered this loss of burden, uh, this loss of vision, this, this, this loss of commitment. And I would even go so far as to say uh, they've forgotten their first love. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. What I want to address first uh, is uh, this notion that if God is sovereign, and he is, and if all people whom God has elected will be saved, and they will be, then why should we preach the gospel or evangelize? When the Christian comes to understand the biblical view of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election, this is a question that sometimes just assaults our minds. And it's, you know, it's an understandable curiosity. It's under, I think it's understandable to, you know, it's kind of hard to understand that. And if we look at John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, if all who are elected to come to Christ will come to Christ, what is the point of praying for salvation? Grady talked about that in a prayer moment, that we should pray for people to be saved. Or for, uh, or for proclaiming the gospel uh, to a friend, What's, what, you know, if it's going to happen anyway. So, I think what we need to do is we need to look at this through the lens of a means and an end. I've been thinking about this. I think we have a skewed understanding uh, that's a result of kind of this myopic view of uh, redemption. So we're going to zoom out a little bit, right? And see if we can understand how God saves us. Well, first of all, the moment of redemption is neither isolated or private. While the Lord sovereignly initiates and directs redemption, he brings about the moment of, of conversion through the weaving together, right? of uh, various circumstances and conditions and individuals. And we call this God's providence. So let's turn to Ephesians uh, 1, if we would. And I'm going to read starting in chapter 13, uh, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, when I came to faith 51 years ago, when I first heard the presentation of the doctrine of salvation, the gospel, God arranged for me Number one, to enter the Marine Corps. Then he had me flown to boot camp in San Diego. Yeah, God did that. He directed me to attend chapel services on a precise preordained Sunday. He made sure that I, I did not attend the Catholic service, but the Protestant service, who, by the way, was officiated that day by a visiting chaplain who was in transit to another duty station. Talk about God's sovereign will uh, working with his providence. 
So looking back again at the narrative of Ephesians here, we learn something really amazing. According to Ephesians 1, not only did God predestined before the foundation of the world that I would receive the gospel at that very moment, and let's call this the end result, but he also predestined the putting together of that moment. God orchestrated the whole event, the causing me to enlist, the bringing about of that chaplain, the causing me to hear the gospel, and then salvation comes by the hearing of the word. Amen? Let's look at another passage of Scripture that I believe sums this concept up nicely, and it's Romans uh, 8, uh, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we might have that, uh, we might think that predestination nullifies our involvement, our involvement, right? Our responsibility to evangelism. But actually, it's just the opposite. You see, God, through his prompting of the Holy Spirit, uses as the means, for instance, praying, or preaching, giving someone a Bible, or inviting someone to church. On that last point, I, I, uh, I know that there are some believers that believe we don't, that we shouldn't invite unsaved people to church. That church is only for believers. That church is not an evangelistic event. And to those who hold this position, I would just simply respond by stating that when a church like ours teaches the Bible, the whole counsel of God, that we are teaching God's plans of redemption, redemption from Genesis to Revelation. It takes us a while, but we do it. Grady's up here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Isn't that what the Bible is? So every time Grady or others get in the pulpit, God is making his plan for us known. His plan of redemption, an evangelistic event. Praise the Lord. Luke 14, 23 says, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Well, this is his house. And looking further back in verse 18, the parable tells us that they all started to what? Make excuses. And this angered the master, Scripture tells us. And I wonder if we anger God when we make these same excuses for not do, going out to preach the gospel, to invite lost people to the banquet. I'm going to have a bunch of questions for you here today as, as I'm talking to you all. When was the last time here today uh, someone here invited someone to church? Or have, they, or have you ever? We're also going to be interactive today. I forgot to tell you. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, have you invited someone to church? Ask them. All right? Ask them. All right? Get used to doing this. We're going to do this today. So we've looked at the how. Now let's look at the why. In other words, why should God's sovereignty and salvation compel us to evangelize? 
Well, first, if God is sovereign, then we don't need to be forceful. Think of a Bible thumper. Think of me in my younger days. But instead, we need to be faithful. I know that a lot of churches tend to look at the numbers and they try to validate their success regarding evangelism. I, I get that. But my friends, we, we can leave that burden at the cross. The pulpit doesn't need forced persuasion. It needs faithful proclamation. Because God is sovereign over the conversion of sinners, we can abstain from the burden of trying to coax people into a decision. And that's hard for me to say. Instead, we can literally rest in the confidence from knowing that Christ will convert people according to his plan, according to his timing. Secondly, check this out. I love this. Our evangelistic efforts have a 100% success rate. You think Gabe, you're crazy, man. 100%, are you sure? Now, as an evangelist, I talk to people every day, and I love knowing this, that I have a 100% success rate. Even when the efforts result in people walking away, even when the efforts result in them scoffing me or scoffing at our words, we can be absolutely assured and confident in our preaching efforts. And here's the question, why? Because God's the author of salvation. He is the cause of salvation. Not our evangelistic proficiency uh, or presentation. Folks, it is our faithful proclamation of the gospel that will yield the exact result the Lord has willed. Third, I like numbers, Grady. If God is sovereign, then we have through his grace been invited into and been in integrated into his providence. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 17. Romans 10, 14 through 17. Scripture reads, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. Praise God. God could have easily accomplished his salvific work within us or without us. Easy. But instead he graciously chose us, chose to involve us. Now my brothers and sisters, by God's grace we have been privileged to participate in God's providence by the means of verbal communication. There's another question. I told you they're coming. When was the last time some of you here today opened your mouth and preached the gospel? Maybe to a coworker. Maybe to a neighbor. Maybe a family member. Maybe someone in your own household. But to encourage you, I want to remind you that while our best evangelism efforts 
can feel spiritually abandoned or unyielding, they are never independent. Our gospel ministry is God's gospel ministry. He is always there using our faithfulness, our obedience to bring about his will. The fourth point. In God's sovereignty, the Great Commission is a delight and not a duty. It's a delight and not a duty. If what I outlined in the first three points is insufficient, then I promise you that you can find supernatural power in the joy of obedience. Turn with me to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's like a Bible study, huh? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our command as Christians who have experienced the love of God in Christ through the gospel is to proclaim that message to all who will hear. Now, if you think the result of your evangelizing lay upon your shoulders, then the work will feel like a duty. I get that way. It, it, it's, I, I get weighed down, and, and I have to realize it's, 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 it's God that's doing this. You know, He's just allowing me to help out in some little way. But if you understand that God alone determines the outcome of this work, it'll be a delight to you. Finally, we, we, we may never know uh, whether the message of our Great Commission preaching, uh, what the results might be, but we do know that God is orchestrating all of it for his own glory. So there's where the joy comes in. In his book, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer reminds us of a simple truth. He says, evangelism is man's work, but the giving of faith is God's. So let us not forget that uh, if we make it about our work, that the gospel efforts are, are going to be distorted. They'll become distorted if we make it about our works. We're going to toil and labor for results that are beyond our jurisdiction. But my friends, when we view salvation in the hands of an almighty God, we will be able to revel in the wonder of our own redemption while we faithfully participate in the salvation story of others. So let me conclude on this line of thinking by stating that uh, Many believers are under the wrong impression that their free will was somehow involved in their salvation. Yeah, I'm going to go there. At this point, I could spend a lot of time going to Scripture to talk about election, predestination, being chosen, being foreknown. But I'm going to simply say this. The triune God did not invite me to weigh in on whether I would... Uh, be saved while the decision was being made before the creation. I was not invited to that meeting between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God did not say, hey, Gabe, you want to exercise your free will to be born again? I was not at that momentous meeting with the God of creation, the God of grace, the God of mercy, who chose me, elected me, predestined me for eternal life, 
And neither were any of you. You weren't at that meeting either. We got an invitation, all right. We went to that meeting. We got the invitation to the master's wedding banquet. And by God's grace, we were given the gift of faith, praise his name, to respond to RSVP. To say, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. To say, I repent of my sin. To say that it's to thank God for this eternal life that he's gifted me with, he's gifted you with. Let's go to Ephesians 2. And we're going to read verses 4 through 10. I could have just probably just read the Bible this whole 30 minutes or so. It would have been just fine, right? God's word does not return void, does it? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By faith you have been saved. I had Grady read this before. So we're going to reiterate. Paul reiterates something twice here too. So it's, it's worth reading twice. And raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And he says it again. For grace you have been saved through faith. Man, if Paul's saying something twice in here, I think it's time to pay attention to that. He didn't do it like five letters later. He's doing it right here. He did it five letters later too. And he says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, and everybody should know this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now that we've established that God uses us to preach the gospel, God's sovereignty together with man's responsibility, let's move on to the things that might hinder us from obeying the command to share Jesus with others. Let's see what God's word says about what needs to be done. Now I want you to know that uh, this might start to become a little bit of a challenge to us. Let's turn to Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 35. We're going to go through 38. So Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Let me repeat that. So now it's the third time you heard it because Grady said it. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. 
We don't pray enough for people to hear the gospel. We don't pray for unsaved people enough. Here's the question again. Get ready to interact. When was the last time you prayed for somebody to be saved? Ask your neighbor, when's the last time you prayed for somebody to be saved? Let me ask you another question. When was the last time you invited someone to church? And I'm not talking about saved people. They're easy to bring to church. I'm talking about lost people. When was the last time? How many of us here today, how many of you here today believe the harvest is plentiful? How many of you today even care? Why are the laborers few? Why? We need to look into our hearts today and ask God to reveal to us what we really think of lost people. We need to experience today the grace and love of God that he will overwhelm us. He will overwhelm you and bring your heart in line with his will. Pray right now with, with, with your transformed heart and mind that God has worked in you. Think right now of someone you know who's lost and start praying for them. That the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. Pray right now for God to make you such a laborer. And he'll equip you by the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, I promise. We need to pray that God raises up saved people with hearts full of passion and commitment. With the love of Jesus in their hearts to go into our community seeking lost folks and sharing the gospel with them. Anyone here like to go fishing? Not me. I personally do not like to fish. It's too much work with too little results. I don't like baiting the hook or sitting around for hours thinking about all the other things I could be doing. But people who like to fish actually are very passionate about it. They know what bait is best. They study where the best place to fish is. They know uh, where the right water depth is, the right time of day, the best lake, stream, or river, or ocean. They know all that stuff. Because they're passionate and dedicated, so they know where to find the fish. We need to know where to find the fish. We need to know where to look for lost people. We need to go out into the community and go where they are. And you can't do that from your couch, and you can't do it from this chair. Now, before you try and tell me that you also do not like fishing, let me read to you from Matthew 4:19. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So you better get used to liking fishing. And I love the disciples' response in verse 20. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
They didn't ponder what he said. They didn't ask if he was talking about someone else. Peter, I think he's talking about you. No, John, I think he's talking about you. They didn't say, I need to know more about how to do this before I can go. I need to study up a bit. Maybe even read my Bible after I wipe the dust off it, of course. Or maybe I need to make sure I'm gifted for evangelism. After all, I don't want to do something that I'm not supposed to be doing. Hello, Jonah. God sent him a big fish. Put him in it. If Jesus says he wants to make us fishers as men, then we can believe by faith that we will be equipped to share our love for Jesus wherever we are, whether you're a brand new believer or an old one like me. And here's some good news. God makes it easy. He makes it easy. You don't even have to go very far to go fishing. There's sure to be someone where you work who is lost or someone in your own home or family, someone in your neighborhood, maybe the gym you belong to, where you go shopping, maybe that place where you like to get that delicious cup of coffee. And where is this passion you should have uh, that I speak of? Well, it, it comes from realizing how God saved you. For understanding that without his grace towards you, that hell would be your destination. If we love Jesus and his gospel, how can we let people pass right by us without telling them their mortal souls are in great peril? How can we do that if we love Jesus? And if we're thankful for our redemption, how can we do that? How can we allow that? I see you, but I'm not going to talk to you. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. If I was sitting in my house, you've heard this, I'm sure, this uh, analogy before. If I was sitting in my house and my neighbor's house was on fire, and if I knew he was in that house... I would do everything I could do to warn him, wouldn't you? I'd be, fire, fire, I'd be yelling, I'd knock on his door, whatever I have to do to get him out of that house to save his life. Get out of that house, you're about to die. We need to understand that when someone dies in the state of sin, there's no praying. There's no preaching. Nothing that we could do to get them into heaven. There's no saving faith after you die, no baptism, no repentance, no redemption. Let's move on. You cannot be ashamed of the gospel. I was telling John, I, I put this in and took it out three times. Put it back. I struggled over this, this part here. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, when believed, changes a person's heart. It changes their life. 
It causes them to be born of the Spirit. It causes them to confess and repent. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Therefore, since God has saved me, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud to be a Christian. I'm filled with boldness for the sake of the gospel. I'm courageous because of the gospel and not afraid to tell people about Jesus. And I I don't care what they think about me. I don't care because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of my Lord Jesus who ransomed me by his shed blood, by his being nailed to a tree because of my sin, who died as the perfect atoning sacrifice that I might be found not guilty, who resurrected on the third day and through him because of him I have new life. I'm not ashamed of that. Why, after all this, would I ever be ashamed of the gospel? Who am I afraid of offending and keeping quiet about Jesus? Who is my judge? Not man. Only a holy, sovereign God. Why would I be ashamed of bringing him glory and honor and praise? Why wouldn't I want to shout from the rooftops about my precious Jesus? I will never, I will never, and and I pray that you never let shame or fear keep you from proclaiming the most wonderful news ever. It's sad. But some of you today have never opened your mouth about Jesus. You're ashamed of the gospel because you fear the consequences that might come your way. I'm trying my best here, beloved, my best to encourage you, my best to push you and nudge you. You see, I've got this burden on my back, it's like that monkey on your back, right, that I can't get rid of. Maybe when we have shared the gospel so much that we need to go to two services every Sunday, maybe that burden will get a little lighter. Maybe when all your family members are saved, that load might lessen. When I can go into our community and see our flock preaching to strangers. And and remember, they're only strangers to you. They're not strangers to God. Especially if he put them there for you to preach to. But if that happens, if if, if I see that happen, this burden maybe would lessen. When I see it happening at the movie theater, or at the gym, or public swimming pool, or at the park, or when I go to Zumba, I'm not going to Zumba, (laughs) but I know some sisters who go there and they can preach Jesus right there at Zumba. Amen? The point is you have a calling and a responsibility and you cannot be ashamed. Let's keep going. You must do the work of an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4.5 reads, As for you, always be sober-minded and endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. So who does the work uh, to fulfill the ministry of the evangelist? I'll tell you. You, 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 you. That's who. 
In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, do the work of an evangelist. Thank you. Tim, do the work of an evangelist. You see, the problem with the church today is they think the work of evangelism is to be done from this pulpit. By pastors and elders and ministers. They abdicate their responsibility to do the work of an evangelist. And you hear the excuses. It's not my job. It's not my gift. I'm too shy. I'm I'm too busy doing other good stuff for Jesus. But we can't leave this important work to, to just the shepherds. Shepherds don't make sheep. Sheep make sheep. You like that? Me too. And by that I mean healthy sheep. Spiritually healthy sheep. It is the job of the shepherd to make sure the sheep are healthy. Now, we can evangelize too. But sheep make sheep. And let me tell you what I mean by healthy sheep. If you're a healthy Christian, you will be a lover of Jesus. Grady talked about you will be a disciple. You will attract lost people to you if you're a healthy sheep. They will look at you the way you talk, the way you act, the things you say about Jesus. They will know that something is different about you. They will see that you are full of the joy of the Lord. And when they see the love of God displayed in your heart, they're going to want that. When they see the joy of the Lord, even when you are in the midst of a storm, they will ask you, with all that's going on in your life, all this trouble and misery, how, you know, how can you still be joyful? Right? And here's what, here's what they say. Here's what a healthy sheep says to that question. Jesus is why I'm full of joy. Jesus is why I'm able to navigate the storms of life. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my rock and my salvation. Jesus has made me a new person in him, a born-again person. Jesus saved my life, and not just for now, but for eternity. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When the world sees this kind of love, this kind of joy, they will be attracted to you, and they will listen to the gospel. You still with me, church? All right, praise God. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 16. And this talks about being an ambassador for Christ. It reads, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. Made him to be no sin who knew no sin, so that in time in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we're God's channel to plead to the world. Through us, God uses our voices as an instrument to uh, proclaim his message. He uses your voices. Not only that, he uses our arms and legs. When someone's hungry, we take food to feed them. When someone's naked, we clothe them in the name of Jesus. When it's time to hear the gospel in God's sovereign timing according to his will, it is you who God will use to plead his message, to proclaim his gospel. Tell your neighbor, you're an ambassador for Christ. Tell him. Thank you. By the way, ambassadors don't stay home. They go out into the world as representatives of God. Jesus said that even though we're no longer in the world, he's sending us out into the world. For what purpose? To preach the gospel, to be his witness, faithful witness. Okay, some more questions. Where is your hope? And what does your hope lie? Are you ready to talk about this hope that is in you? In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So no Bible thumping. I love our church here at Maricopa Springs. I love this church. This is a church that focuses on developing our people, discipleship. We're always teaching the word of God in a way that honors Christ. In a way that strengthens the flock. In spirit and in truth, we teach what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is our job as elders. To prepare you, to give you an answer for the hope that is in you. And while preparing this message, you know, I asked myself, right? Why do I have this hope? Why do I put my trust in this hope? And in contemplating thus, I was, I was taken back to Acts chapter 13. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing here, right? It's too long. Don't have the time. But I just want to share with you the narrative. So here's Paul and his companions. They went to Antioch, and they went to this place called Pisidia. And they had gone into the synagogue, and when someone had noticed they were visitors that day, they asked Paul to say a few words. Well, Paul didn't just say a few words. Oh, hey, what did he do? He proceeded to preach a sermon. And afterwards, when Paul was leaving, the people begged him in the scripture, it says, to come back next week, next time at synagogue, and preach the same message. Man, I've been preaching the word of God for 40 plus years, nobody's ever asked me to preach the same message again. And Grady, has anybody asked you to preach that message again about parasites? No, I don't think so. Okay. That was a rough one, huh? But we were blessed. I would eventually, uh, so what was it that Paul said that made them want to hear it again? Right? 
Well, if you look at verse 38 and 39, we see Paul saying, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed. Some translations say justified. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then if you look ahead to verse 44, it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. Man, that's some good preaching there. Right? When I read this, I, I remembered why I have hope. If we preach the gospel, people will listen. If we tell them the truth of Scripture like Paul did, big things will happen, will begin to take place. I mean, look at this. The whole city came back on the next Sabbath to hear the word of God. This is why I have hope. This is why I'm imploring you today to preach the good news, to open your mouth and talk to folks about Jesus. Say to them that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is available to you. Say to them that everyone who believes on this man, Jesus, will be justified in the eyes of God. They will be declared not guilty of sin. You see, we're preaching forgiveness of sins. I don't care who you are, where you live, what you've done, everybody needs forgiveness of sin. Everybody. Look again at your neighbor. Say, you need forgiveness of sins. It's getting easier, huh? Every one of us here today needs forgiveness of sin. Don't tell me that none of you this week didn't say something you weren't supposed to say. Don't tell me that there's nobody in here that didn't do something they, they weren't supposed to do. Right? Or did something they weren't supposed to do or not do something they're supposed to do. There you go. Commission, omission. Everyone today, here today has missed the mark. Everyone here today has fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. But we have a responsibility of telling people to come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive grace. Confess and repent of your sin. And you will be washed as white as snow. My friends, I've fallen short and sinned against the Holy God. You've fallen short and sinned against the Holy God. But the reason we have hope is because we can be forgiven. We are forgiven in Christ. Hallelujah. This is why Jesus is important, for which is one of many reasons. He wipes our slate clean. He justifies us from all things. He makes it possible for God to look at us as if we have never sinned. Not only that, but God will never remember, he remembers our sin no more. Man, people don't treat us like that, do they? They remember what you did. They recall your past, they bring up your failures. Thank you. But not God, he's gracious and loving and he sees us as righteous in Christ. And this is the good news and we're supposed to be proclaiming this is the hope that is in us. The hope that is in you. You know, I've been to a lot of churches over, over the years and, and all of them were friendly or welcoming. I've been to churches when over, I even said hello to me. Walked in, not even a hello. See you later. Thank you, thanks for coming by. Nothing. But we're not like that here at our church. We're a welcoming church. A friendly church, warm-hearted and always ready to talk to folks and get to know them. We exhibit the love of God, and that's a good thing. So if we can do that here, 
Why can't we take that same attitude of love out into the community that God has placed us in? We have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ. We have a hope in us because of Christ, and we are declared by God to be his ambassadors. I know we can do this. I know you can do this. Tell your neighbor, you can do this. This is the old marine in me. I love giving orders. <laughs> but sadly, we don't. Let me share this last thought with you why we are not good at evangelism here in our church. We've lost our first love. My beloved brothers and sisters, it's, it's no small thing for me to say this to you this morning. My heart's broken and my burn's heavy. And, and uh, I get a little emotional here, just work with me. I agonize about this when preparing this sermon. I, I tried to say something different, something easier, something that might not hurt some feelings. I tried. And it's because I love you all so much. I love all the things you do in the name of Jesus. I love the way you care for one another. You're great one another's. God is using you in marvelous ways. But we need to face the truth that as a church, we are not what we can be, what God wants us to be, proclaiming the gospel to our community. Let's go to Revelation 2, verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake, my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I read this and I asked myself, are we living our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? I thought more about that question this week and started to consider the idea that living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is, is, is more than, much more than how a person lives. It's also about the heart. Meaning living a life worthy of the gospel also involves the motive and manner by which and I, you and I conduct our lives. This leads to even more questions I want to ask. Is your heart and love for God worthy of the gospel? Is your love for both God and others displayed in how you live? Do you love the Lord with all your heart and all your actions in line with the heart of God like when you first believed? Do your actions display your love of God in such a way that others see your love for Jesus and a love for people who are lost so that they will experience the love of Jesus for themselves? Are you loving others and loving God in the same manner than once you did when you, once you, did when you were first saved? Or has this love <clears throat> faded over time?
I believe these to be legitimate questions uh, that require an answer. Our love for God can lessen over time. Just ask the frog in the pot. It happens unknown to us. The enemy of our souls will not uh, try to change our hearts overnight. A church on fire for Christ doesn't suddenly change one day. It happens slowly. It may take a generation. I mean, look at Israel. They turned away from following the Lord in one generation. The church at Ephesus was doing all the right things, and yet they needed to repent. They had forsaken their first love. I believe they, they began to focus on the battle rather than Jesus. They focused on battling sin rather than on loving the Savior. They focused on what they should confront rather than focusing on Jesus. Slowly over time, duty replaced love. Slowly religious actions and hard work replaced their love for Jesus. They have forgotten what drew them to Jesus in the first place, the love of God. We talked about adoration. Let's let God's uh, word minister to us right now. And we're almost done. <laughs> Psalms 51 reads, we may never forget the, uh, uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalms 51 real quickly here. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. May we never forget the love of God. Think back right now to when you first loved Jesus. Can you go back in time to when you first loved Jesus? Do that. To the day when Jesus first loved you. Do you remember how passionate you were about Jesus? Do you recall how thank you, thankful you were for God's forgiveness? There's a sister sitting uh, here today who was on fire for Christ, 
who's in the throes of God's love and who cannot help but let everyone in her sphere know how much she loves Jesus. I'm talking about Jenny Estrada. You remind me, Jenny, of the early days of my own walk. The days when I was overwhelmed by the love of God. I pray the whole church will follow your example. I'm so proud of you. Spend some time with this young lady. And uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew it a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And here it is. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Think back to when you came to Christ. He wants to restore your joy. The joy you experienced when he first found you and saved you. And then he wants to give you a willing spirit. Actually, he desires to uphold us with a willing spirit. Willing to do the work of an evangelist because he loves you. He loves us. Because he loves all sinners. People who are broken and lost. People with no hope whose only deliverance is the cross of Christ. I want you never to forget the love of God. I want you never to take your spiritual eyes off the one who first loved us. Continue to love him. Don't ever replace your love for Jesus with a bunch of religious do's and don'ts. Don't do that. We started our series on the core values with adoration. Grady taught us why God needs to be always first in our hearts and everything else second. He is our first love, and when we lose or forget that first love, we fail to share his message of salvation. That's the result. We lose the passion, the joy, the desire to shout God's redemption from the rooftops. Let me close with a little advice. Never forget the love of God. Never allow duty or hard work to replace or quench the motive and love you have in your heart for Jesus. Don't allow anything to come between you and Jesus. Repent. Each church and each individual is responsible to act in a way that glorifies God. You see, the believers in Ephesus, they were doing all the right things, but their love for God was missing. They lost their first love. The foundation of the church was based on faith in Christ. Over time, because some individuals drifted spiritually, the whole church drifted spiritually. And they all needed to be reminded to focus on Jesus and repent. As a church, we need to determine to live by faith and in obedience to Christ. Before we came to Christ, we had all the baggage. I'm talking about sin. We did not look like believers because we weren't believers. We did not sound like believers. We did not act like believers. Yet we were shown the love of God. How? We heard the gospel message from someone on fire for Jesus. Then we responded to the gospel message as, a God, as God gifted us with faith to repent and believe. These people that God in his sovereign will and divine providence, they were sent to where we were, these fishers of men. They found the fish. And they were, uh, obedient. they were obedient, but with adoration for Christ, preached salvation to us. They did the work of an evangelist. We cannot shrink back in fear of men. What they may think or say about us, we're not ashamed of the gospel, right? We need to remember our first love and go into the hedgerows and highways and invite, compel lost people to come 
to the master's wedding banquet. We need to pray for the lost that God will save them. We need to work, uh, look around us and see where God has placed us. Where has he placed you? And who did he place around you? So that you could be a powerful witness for Christ. My brothers and sisters, do the work of evangelists. Let us pray. Well, God, there's no question of your greatness. No searching of your power of the wonder of your glory. Lord, to you 40 years is but one hour. Your knowledge is all-encompassing. To your wisdom there's no limit, no end. You are God alone. You alone are God. Your mercy is everlasting. Your grace is unmerited. You pour it out on us. Your forgiveness and salvation will, we will never take for granted. Because you loved us first, we will never forget our first love, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray, dear God, that you give us today passion and boldness, courage and obedient hearts, that we do the work of an evangelist, an ambassador, out of adoration for you with thanksgiving and praise to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.